Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back. This is the OIS Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to let you know that it is time to vote. We have announced our finalists for the OISX Ophthalmology Innovator Awards. The dinner gala that we're holding to celebrate the 10th OIS at AAO is happening on October 24th in Chicago, the day before OIS at AAO. And the day will, the night will be dedicated to uh, honoring those leaders in the space who, uh, by the, the opinion of our OIS community, have uh, have really stood out and really warrant uh, recognition. So there are several finalists for each category, and there are several categories. They are clinical innovator, industry innovator, clinical rising star, industry rising star, deal maker of the year award, and for technology, the game changer award. So again, this is your opportunity to share your opinion on which luminaries in our industry should be recognized at our OISX Gala. So please go to ois.net to vote and do so before October 3rd. While you're there, of course, you can register for OIS at AAO, which is happening on October 25th in Chicago. And I'm very pleased to announce our guest today is Jim Timmons. Jim is the clinical director of the Ophthalmic Consultants of Connecticut. He's a leading OD, and uh, he's got a a very interesting path uh, into optometry, one of the more interesting uh, stories that I've heard. And uh, he's a very, uh, very thoughtful man as to the future of the space. Uh, we had a great conversation about where things are headed, what impact new technologies like telemedicine will have in the space. But more importantly, he clearly gets excited about uh, the advances in eye care, including treatments and glaucoma. We talked a great deal about that as well. So it was a real joy to talk to Jim, and uh, I know you will enjoy this conversation. So I want to point out that I recorded this interview with Jim just after he had uh, chaired the National Glaucoma Society's uh, Symposium on Cape Cod this summer. So uh, you'll hear some references to the meeting. This podcast was recorded uh, about a month ago, a little over a month ago. Before I let you go, again, don't forget to go to OIS.net to vote for the OISX finalists. And now please enjoy this conversation with Jim Simmons. Jim Timmons, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, the, the, the question I like to start off these podcasts with is, to, is aimed or they're aimed at finding a little bit more out about our guests. So the very basic question is, is how did you find your way into uh, optometry as a career? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I actually um, left my undergraduate with a non-biologic um, degree. I was a Bachelor of Fine Arts, but... Uh, after a few years of being a struggling employed person with a uh, minor studio, uh, sculpture studio, really? I decided that I actually need—I decided I actually needed to <laughs> get to the real world and uh, find something I wanted to do. And I did some investigation. I looked at some disciplines. I looked at law. I looked at medicine, and uh, I just happened to inadvertently meet a really remarkably talented person who was an optometrist. And, 
struck me as an interesting individual. I thought it was an interesting profession, and uh, the rest became as it is. All right, well, two questions. Do you still sculpt? You know what? Until I moved to Connecticut, I actually kept my studio, but uh, I left it once I got here. It was a little bit too complex here with all of the regulations and the property issues. You, you, need, a, you need a nice little farm to uh, make that happen. No at kidding. Least, uh, at least a loft in the city or something. <laughs> I didn't have any of that, so. You can't just put it in the garage, I guess, huh? No, not here, I don't think. Not, right. not the way they do it. So. And, and what was it about optometry that you found found appealing? Was it the, the eye itself? or? Yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought that the science was fascinating, and I was very uh, taken by the, the integration of thought as well as perception and how that impacted people's actions and their perspectives. And uh, to this day, that's, that's part of where my general interest still lies. I mean, I love understanding how the patient's visual process is impacted by what we do, you know, how surgical intervention changes visual perception and how, you know, modification of corrective elements, lenses, whatever. I don't really, really do those at the office, but we do a lot of surgery. Mm-hmm. And it's always fascinating when somebody comes in and says, I see really well, but I don't like it. That, that excites me. Because <laughs> it gives me an opportunity to go into this deeper space, which is the brain-mind connection. Uh, you know, Oliver, Oliver Sacks is one of my really significant sort of heroes in the world of perception and, and, and pathology at the same time. And I, I love the way he viewed the world. I actually read him actually in the very early part of my career and became quite in, quite taken by his work. So I like that side of it, but I also like you know, just being able to assist someone in that day-to-day function of keeping their ophthalmic status whole, whatever that is, whether it's treating a disease problem, solving a complex refractive concern after surgery, whatever it is. That's That's an enjoyable deductive process on a day-to-day basis. And I, I think that's something that brings a lot of the doctors in the eye care world into the space is that they love that moment-to-moment challenge. That's interesting. And I don't want to strain to find the connection, but your initial foray into sculpting, I mean, I have to imagine that there's a lot of that as well, connecting the images of your brain to, to, to reality and sort of and making that connection between perception. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, anybody that as from the surgical side, I mean, I watch my partners from an incredibly gifted group of people, and you know, I watch what they do, and they, you know, they basically sculpt the patient's vision to a future position, right, for the rest of their lives. You do a LASIK surgery, a cataract surgery, and that's that's fascinating, and it's also sort of mentally interesting to watch what it does to people. You know, how you know a minor refractive procedure and a high myope may actually cause them to become a different type of person less focused, less structured, less, excuse the expression, OCD, a little more open and relaxed. And and we we have an uncountable number of examples of that in individuals who came in with being A, personality, and left left with being a different, kinder version of that and still being very successful. And, uh, you know, Eric and I used to joke a little bit about that might be an interesting way to help bring relationships back together is to undergo the fracture. <laughs> <during> the structure. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like a business right there. <laughs> uh, possibly. possibly. Yeah, as you're expanding your, your practice. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, optometry has, has certainly changed uh, over over the past decade and a half. And, and in this answer, I want you to talk a bit about the, the uh, your founding of Ophthalmic Consultants of Connecticut. But 
how is your your patient population and and what you do every day? How has that changed uh, over that time? Well, you know, in the beginning, when Eric and I chose to become partners, which was certainly, a, from my perspective, a remarkably positive decision and has been, and I'm sure will continue to be for the rest of our practice lives. But um, you know, we had equally interesting pieces that we brought to the table. I had come from the uh, co-management arena, having been involved from the very beginning in that, one of the original 13 facilities called Omni Centers that were founded. And I had a concept that I would, that I wanted to sort of bring to the 21st century, which was not relying exclusively on optometry referrals, which most of the other facilities do, but to really expand it to a true secondary tertiary level referral facility for everybody uh, who has an interest in their patient's visual well-being. So anybody from, you know, a rheumatologist to neurology to gastroenterology to you know, obstetrics to endocrinology. And we get referrals from that base on a, on a daily basis. Uh, we also have a very large referral from optometry and my partners, Eric and uh, Rob and John, also are you know blessed to have a sizable ophthalmology referral base because of their unique expertise within their subset. So that's been one of the really um, rewarding aspects of building this practice is that we don't do general eye care to speak of unless you know you're a GP and you have a patient with a problem, they're referred in and it ends up being a simple you know spectacle correction. Patient seen, they're prescribed and then they're you know moved on to uh, another opportunity for a more you know, primary care event. And by doing that, we've been able to build a very robust and I think really broad-based community service type of practice. You know, we have multiple offices. We interface with hundreds of clinicians a week across the disciplines. And it makes for a very interesting and uh, challenging day. So and I, I think we I think we provide a level of service that obviously is needed. You know, our, our volume by growth has been extraordinary and we've gone from zero to the largest practice in the state in less than fifteen years. So does your practice provide just basic vision correction, glasses, contacts and such, or do you send that to others for we don't provide any optical services. Mm-hmm. We made that decision a long time ago. Uh, as I said, if you come in and you're referred by your doctor to me or one of my colleagues, we'll see you. And if you have a routine issue that requires just general intervention, you know, depending on you know, who you are and you know, sort of the circumstances, whether you may have dry eye along with that or, you know, some problems with, you know, glaucoma suspect or AMD, then, you know, you'll stay in the practice. If you're a general patient, you know, our recommendation is let's find you somebody who can take care of your contact lens needs or manage you know, your general refractive issues over time and provide good comprehensive primary care. And when you have a problem, they'll send you back to see us. It's a problem they can't manage. So, And how is that changing? If I were to draw a pie chart on the whiteboard next to me uh, and, and carve it a piece that, that represents uh, ODs who, who do what you do and, 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 and don't provide vision correction, how big would that piece of pie be? Would it be larger than I think, or, or are you a, a smaller um, subset? I, I think what's happened, Tom, is that over the last 15 years, particularly and previously a little bit less numbers, the model that we have, which is more of that secondary tertiary model, has evolved all over the country. I mean, I, you know, we go to meetings and you know, we get together and we chat about how are you doing this and how are you handling that. Everybody has their own version of it, but 
You know, it's very sort of geographically and demographically driven. But the vast majority are like us in that they provide a high level of service across a fairly large range of practitioners, including a large optometry base. And as such, they become that sort of higher end of the pyramid in the ophthalmic care community. Um, and I think they, uh, they they serve a real purpose because without the structure or the the, the day-to-day load of you know, having a large patient base is coming back for their comprehensive evals or whatever they're being seen for. You know, we can see urgent patients literally you know, within two hours. Somebody calls like this afternoon. I actually almost missed this call because we had three urgents at the end of the day, a little more complex than I thought they were. And I said yes, and they were in and out, and everybody was well. But, you know, I think that the, our model is more nimble as a result of that because we see typically just that type of urgent and or recurrent medical patients. So we can adapt our schedules very nicely. And you know, we reach out to urgent care centers and other practices and say, you know, if you have a problem, you know, give us a call. And, and they do. And uh, once the patients are well cared for, they just keep coming back because it's uh, I think it's an experience that the patients really appreciate that they don't have to go to an ER and wait for six or eight hours. You know, most large ophthalmology practices, quite frankly, are really busy. And you know, they're they're structured in such a way that they have a just a mass of of uh, of uh, substance that makes it less simple for them to approach that in the way we do. But with our practice, because of the fact that we don't have all that primary care base, uh, it gives us the ability to see patients on a more access ready basis, and I think that's been very helpful for us. So. And back to your original question, I, I think the, the tide is rising rapidly on what we do. And I think people are recognizing that, you know, you get good people together and let them practice at a level consistent with their skills and their license and everybody benefits in the long run. All right, I'd like to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that the discounted rate for OIS at AAO will expire on September 25th. So please go to ois.net to register for OIS at AAO. It's happening on October 25th in Chicago. Now let's get back into this conversation with Jim Timmons. What what impact is technology having on the OD community? And I'm asking for a few reasons. We're seeing a lot of great technology on the, the therapeutic side, and we can talk about some of the advances in glaucoma and other areas. On the flip side, I'm also understanding that the introduction of telehealth and the use of iPhones for renewing contact prescriptions and stuff seems to be putting pressure on those ODs that do the the level of therapy and treatment that you do. So it it seems like this is really a specialty that's getting both benefiting from and maybe is threatened a bit by uh, new technologies. Look, I I absolutely agree that the the rising level of technologies in what I would call the... uh, the internet space, for lack of a better term, that's probably a better uh, way to describe that, but most of them actually come through the internet or some form of connection via a smartphone or other application, has been a real challenge for my colleagues and for our profession of optometry. I also, though, am a firm believer that disruptive technology is, in most instances, uh, positive. And you know, the analogy that I just gave at the meeting on Cape Cod was, you know, think 15 years ago, well, even 10 years ago, when OCT was just beginning, 
and you were a retina specialist and your entire practice was based on recurrent visits with patients with relatively modest disease states like early AMD or minor diabetic retinopathy without macular edema. And somebody introduced an instrument that let everyone in the eye space have a relatively equal level of diagnostic capacity overnight. And it has really changed the world. I mean, if you go to retina practices today, they typically don't deal with what can be typically what can be well managed within the primary care space. And yet, ten years ago, that was a standard referral for many many people. So, I, I think disruptive technologies generally end up having a positive impact. I think the issue at play today, from my perspective, is simply that it's a technology that is pushing against a relatively long-standing doctor-patient interface. And I think a lot of doctors see that as a lesser level of service, and I'm, I'm not sure that I would disagree with that. I think, I, I think it is true that it's a pertinent service, but not something that serves everybody equally well. Um, but I also understand that it's next iteration and the iteration after that and the iteration after that will be better and better because that's the nature of 28-year-olds who have a degree in computer science. They can generate <laughs> amazing things in a short period of time. Very true. Um, and eventually, I, I anticipate that that marketplace will settle to a substantial percentage of patients choosing to access their services via a smartphone. And the doctors who adapt well will be the doctors who move on towards a much more directed medical service model for patients across the entire spectrum of both diagnostic and therapeutic intervention. And when they do, I think they can pretty much count on being very successful because that's a demand point that's really difficult to replace. You know, I have a painful red eye. I don't know of an app that currently can handle anything like that. <laughs> Not yet. No. Uh, so I, I, I expect that there's a longer time frame. I mean, you look at other disciplines, we also had this discussion on okay, the radiology you know, with automated intelligence and uh, facial recognition software that's being developed all over the world. It's inevitable that somebody is going to have a machine that's going to read radiologic film. And, you know, what, what does that do to the radiologist in the future? My anticipation is that they'll find a way to adapt and become the the managers of the information as they pretty much already are, but at a higher level. And I anticipate that that's what my colleagues will eventually do as well. So I think it's said that the radio, it won't replace radiologists, but the radiologists who use these tools will replace they the radiologists the tools who don't. They use to become bigger and yeah. better versions of themselves. Exactly. And I anticipate, you know, if optometry goes in the direction that I see them moving, I anticipate that we'll have that same success. But every profession is going to go through this. It's It's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens with the literally ex explosion of technology on a short cycle, you know, not a year or two or three, but sometimes six months or three months, and you have a new product. You know, I sat on the AOA New Technology Committee to review new systems of development across a pretty broad range of topics, and I'm astounded by how busy my inbox is on the email side weekly and monthly. You know, here's a new technology. Review this for the organization and tell us what you think the impact's going to be. And you know, in many instances, the impacts are remarkably positive, and in others, they present real challenges that everybody has to sit down and collaboratively work towards resolving. And understanding that you know, industry is not going to stop, 
and that the nature of a professional has to evolve over time as do the technologies at service. So, and we can't expect to have new technology all the time in every dimension and then say, oh no, stop here because this, this isn't good for me. You know, the technology is either present or it isn't. And then we all have to learn how to adapt. So interesting. Let's, let's talk more about the technology that is, that is, that you are using and that you're, you're seeing patients benefit from. I know you referenced the, uh, the National Glaucoma Society meeting uh, that you attended just a couple of days ago on Cape Cod. Um, tell us a bit about uh, what's uh, what were some of the issues discussed there. I also know you talked about glaucoma treatment at SECO earlier this year, so this is certainly... We did, yeah. My partner, Dr. Rob Nowicker, and myself were uh, blessed to be able to uh, present to a very large body of people at SECO. That was a lot of fun. That's great. Um, yeah, effectively... You know, within each discipline in eye care, you know, subspecialty discipline, specifically in ophthalmology, you know, retina had such a run starting about 10 years ago. But once the anti-VEGF process has has moved forward, you don't really hear that drum beating quite as loudly as it once did. I mean, it's there and they have new technologies, but they don't, they're not showing something new on a weekly basis, a monthly basis. Uh, cornea and anterior segment across both diagnostic as well as uh, therapeutic drug and surgery has just rushed forward in the last five to 10 years. You know, the number of new procedures to provide tissue replacement, the number of new drugs to provide you know, unique and very selective treatment of disease states has really exploded. But the part that's most interesting from my perspective, because it really interfaces devices and disease state intervention is glaucoma. I mean, glaucoma is, well, two new drugs in 217. That's a huge step forward from the last 20 years or so. And both of them are very exciting. You know, Visolta and Ropressa have a lot of potential. And then the new MIG space, which has effectively completely altered the landscape of glaucoma management as we know it for probably the rest of time. Because it used to be medications... SLT, maybe some more medications, and when the patient got bad enough, a trab or a tube. But now we have, well, just this week on the Cape, I counted uh, both Dr. Birdall and Dr. Sarkissian collectively along with the other speakers, probably talk about 12 or 13 different options between endomedication and trabeculectomy. And I see that as both a huge movement forward for patients my patients, everybody's patients, and also just in the concept of understanding how to tailor each patient's approach uniquely. You know, the idea of mixing and matching medications with surgical intervention, with multiple surgical interventions to achieve goal pressures, that was unheard of five years ago. And I'm sure if you go to like the AGS meeting, uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm certain that the same discussions being put forth there of how to how to just absolutely take this and, and move it down the field so that the endpoint, which is our patients, are best served. And I see a lot of very bright minds um, in a lot of dimensions, ophthalmology, optometry, kind of cogitating how all that can happen. So I think right now the glaucoma space is particularly exciting. But I'm sure that the you know a new new device or new elemental roll up you know, coming up on the other sides, you know, cornea, 
retina, et cetera, that will really change our perspective. But I think glaucoma is very, very interesting right now. And I know you were excited or at least talked recently about, um, and if if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, (laughs) let me know, corneal hysteresis. Hysteresis. Yes, the A1C of glaucoma, as you're saying, as you've said. There you go. Yeah. Thank you for the quote. <laughs> <laughs> See, I do my homework from time to time. There you go. I appreciate that. So is in that, and I know you were also excited about the eye care home uh, tonometer. How, how is that going to change the care of glaucoma? Corneohysteresis is, has really come of age. Um, there's, and the literature started back probably a decade or so ago. Neil Congdon, when he was at uh, Wilmer, published a really bright and shiny paper that was very well received. Uh, it was sort of the first of the really good peer-reviewed literature, and now there's easily 700 plus, maybe 800 plus peer-reviewed papers and on the subject. And you know, it just keeps getting richer and richer as a tool for both identifying patients within the glaucoma space who are most likely to be the rapid progressors, because that's a very important person to know. And then subsequently, the patients now with Felipe Madero's recent publication in early 2018 here uh, on identifying patients in the glaucoma suspect space that are capable of early identification for either high-level monitoring or much earlier intervention based on their corneal hysteresis. And the simple reason, I think, is that you know the corneal biomechanics mimic and or co-represent the mechanics of the lamina cribosa. And that structural identity that they share is capable of being codified on a diagnostic level to predict behavior of the optic nerve over time uh, in, in the disease state. So that's incredibly exciting because it gives a common tool to every eye care practitioner out there to identify high-risk behavior in glaucoma. And I think in the near future, once you know, once Felipe's article becomes, Dr. Medeiros' article becomes more well understood and, and more disseminated, I think you'll see clinicians across the country step back and say, this is an amazing tool. The eye care home tonometer, which has been fascinating, is the first ever real sort of semi-telemetric device. It doesn't Wi-Fi information to you, but the patient brings it back. And, you know, we'll do a three or four day home visit with this. And they come back and instead of having four intraocular pressure measurements over the course of a year or three for about two seconds, you get a window from a Friday to a Tuesday. And they might take 30 or 40 measurements for you over that time period and allow you to up, you know, download them via the USB port and then it prints out this beautiful cyclic map for you to show you where the IOPs are, what time of day, that type of thing. Um, that's fascinating, and I think it plays an enormous role to the future of, again, looking at those who are high risk. You know, I see a lot of patients who use it and come back. Pressures are not notably different at night, and others come back and the pressures are markedly different at night. And then you look at their progression patterns, and those are the ones that seem to be progressing the most rapidly. So. Yeah, I'm very excited about those simple yet elegant diagnostic technologies. I think they fit the model really well, and they also match up well with future surgical technologies to sort of mix and match and say patients with low hysteresis may end up being better candidates for 
trabecular outflow, or they may end up being better candidates for, you know, some form of uh, transscleral device like a Zen. We don't know that yet, but I think that information will start blending together side to side, so diagnostic and surgical. So yeah, that's, uh, that's terrific. I mean, for so long, ophthalmologists and optometrists have been sort of reaching out in the dark, trying to trying to get their hands around these diseases. So it's nice to to shine some actual light via data on these conditions. There's one more device that I think bears uh, mentioning, and that's the uh, very interesting uh, new development that John Birdall's put in play, which is the Equinox system. I know you are familiar with that, but uh, that I was, am. We we had him on the podcast a couple of, a couple of months a uh, month or so ago. But please uh, yeah, bring that, the... that's no, that's very it's very it's very exciting because it adds an entirely new dimension to what has historically been thought of as disease X, which is optic nerve perfusion intraocular pressure, both of which, you know, we can measure and, and both of which are amenable to intervention. And you still have to treat the pressure. I mean, that's the basic disease element that we can manage. But his is so considerably different because of the fact that it allows you to manage the disease by negating pressure non-pharmacologically and non-surgically. And, you know, if in fact his clinical trials are successful, I anticipate that will add a whole new uh, level of consideration and intervention uh, in a way that may actually change the course of the disease. I mean, that, that's a real outside-the-box concept. I was quite taken by his presentation this weekend, and I've been doing a lot of reading on it before that. But I like people who think outside the box and come up with somewhat elegant and simple solutions to more complex problems. And for the benefit of those who, who perhaps didn't catch that uh, that podcast very quickly, I mean, it's a it's a visor that essentially changes the air pressure around the eye. Is is that a an apt description? Yeah, yeah. What what it does is it changes. It's a vacuum system that allows you to decrease the gradient of pressure between the outside air and the cerebrospinal fluid. And so it changes that pressure gradient. By lowering that pressure gradient, you, in theory, would bring increased exoplasmic flow to the laminar corbosa. And look, this still has to be shown to be effective in real time, but you know, as a thought, this is a pretty interesting thought. I'm with you. Those those concepts that sometimes cause you to scratch your head at first, and then the more you think about it, the more it makes sense are, are, are very appealing stories. So I hope that uh, hope that bears out. Just finally, uh, your, your partner, Eric Donenfeld, has been a critical part of uh, the Ophthalmology Innovation Summits, and we're excited to be working with you on, uh, on an OIS event at SECO in, uh, in February. Is now the time, you think, for, for this sort of event where we're, we're shining a light on, on those technologies and tools that can uh, really help uh, the, the OD side of the business? Look, I've, I've had the honor and the uh, real pleasure of attending OIS at uh, Ascris and uh, other meetings. And... I have to say that when I when I went to my first OIS, I literally walked out with a cell phone full of forward messaging saying, you know, this is the technology, look this up, look this up. I had 22 <laughs> that I really was just taken by, and I went back and I spent time with them, and I even called up two of my best friends and said, this has to happen in our profession because there's just so much information that crosses over on both sides. And yet, you know, we're just not getting that unique view of the industry perspective, the investment community, uh, the the forward thinking of the you know the C-suite officers and how they want to you know roll the product out, and where they anticipate the impact points will be within healthcare. 
and uh, we had a small version at Seco, which I thought went well, and specifically the one at AOA that was a small, another version I thought went particularly well. Um, uh, so I, I think this is a great opportunity for optometry, and I think hopefully OIS will enjoy that as well because it's a way to take a very large profession of about 38 or 39,000 people and begin to attribute the type of information that you've start to put into the day-to-day vernacular of eye care. You know, your podcast, by the way, is just outstanding. If anybody's not listening to it, they oh, should. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best 25 minutes in a car <laughs> waiting in traffic. <laughs> you know, that's, that's um, fine with me. I love, I love, as someone who sits in traffic a lot, any relief is, uh, is welcome. So uh, thank you. you. That's a kind comment. So, yes, I think, I think it's time and I, I think we will enjoy it tremendously. And I know with the level of, uh, professionalism and, um, and depth that you bring to this, pro- to this process, I think you will make this a very successful program. So I'm looking forward to it. And we're, and we're looking forward to uh, working with you on it. So thank you so much for, uh, for taking some time today. And uh, we look forward to hearing much, much more of you in the future. Tom, thanks so much. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the OIS podcast. Please, podcast listeners, if you would subscribe, that would be a big help. But more important, do tell your colleagues and friends about the podcast if they love innovation in ophthalmology as much as you do. Finally, don't forget to vote for our uh, finalists of the OISX Awards. Go to OIS.net, have a complete list of finalists, and you'll have your opportunity to voice your opinion. And please do so before October 3rd. Finally, don't forget to join us at OIS at AAO on October 25th in Chicago.